which I'm Leonard Lopate. In his latest book, astronomer Philip Plate describes what you would see and how you would feel if you were standing on Mars or experiencing sunset on a world with multiple suns, or if you could orbit a black hole. The book, Under Alien Skies, A Sightseer's Guide to the Universe, is published by W.W. W. Norton and brings Dr. Philip Play to our show now. Welcome. Thank you for having me on. Do we continue to discover new things about the universe as we develop new technologies and theories? Oh, absolutely. That's the, that's the whole premise of astronomy. Uh, since, uh, since the first folks started looking up at the sky with even small telescopes, the very first things they looked at were new discoveries. Hmm. And ever since then, we've been improving them, including making them huge, launching them into space, uh, tuning them to different wavelengths, colors the eye cannot see. And we've literally discovered the entire universe that we understand up to now. So it's just it's robotics as well that uh, is giving us information. Right. Uh, You know, we can't leave the Earth too easily right now. At least humans can't. So we send these robotic probes to other planets and other worlds. And we've seen since I was a kid. We've gone to Uranus, Neptune, flew past Pluto, uh, seen comets and asteroids up close. It's been really amazing. It's a wonderful time to be an astronomer. But don't the realities of space, live, space flight still remain problematical? For example, a commercial space flight company SpaceX scrapped its first scheduled test flight of Starship, a huge stainless steel rocket that could one day carry humans to the moon, Mars, and beyond? Well, sure, this isn't... Should we blame uh, Elon Musk? Is that it? Well, uh, when it comes to something like Starship, uh, this is a very interesting rocket. It is huge. It's larger than the Saturn V, and it's never been flown before. They've done a bunch of tests. The tests have gone okay, and there was a stuck valve yesterday. That happens. That happens with established rockets. So uh, it's not a failure. It's just, it's oh, you know, this is something that went wrong. We'll fix it, and we'll try to launch it again. That happens a lot, and there are a lot of problems. This this isn't easy. If it were easy, it would have been done hundreds of years ago. But it is getting better, and rockets are more reliable. The Falcon 9, the smaller rocket that uh, launches into space and then the booster comes back down, has had over 200 successful flights, hmm. and it's brought the cost of space travel way down. So um, I don't agree with everything uh, Elon Musk does uh, or even what SpaceX does, but you can't argue that uh, that they're not doing their job. They are an amazing company doing amazing work. In this book, you take us to 10 locations from our own moon to black, a black hole in the center of our galaxy to the outer reaches of our solar system and, and far beyond. What is beyond mean is space infinite oh well (laughs) we have about four hours for this right um space may in fact be infinite but we don't know what's that sorry but we're not sure it just seems to me i can't imagine it not being infinite the alternative would be that there'd be a wall somewhere well, it, it's it it gets complicated because the physics and the mathematics are extremely complex. There is only so far out into the universe we can see because the universe itself is finite in age. It's 13.8 billion years old or so. And we can only see things that their light has had enough time to reach us. So we call that the observable universe. But there may be just a universe. There probably the- is universe beyond that. And it could very well be infinite. We just don't know. So we only know a fraction of the universe's total size? Sure. It's like it's like standing on the Earth, a little bit like standing on the Earth. And you look around and you can only see to the horizon. And there's a lot of Earth out there past that. Not an infinite amount, but a lot. And it's the kind of the same here. We don't know how much universe is out there past that observational horizon. And it, it may very well be uh, infinite. Since faster than light travel will probably never be invented, how much... Uh, of all of these things is still a matter of just uh, conjecture. Well, uh, sadly, I kind of have to agree with you. I don't think faster than light travel is possible. It certainly isn't according to the physics of today as we understand it. And so we have to observe things from Earth 
or you know go to other planets but if you're talking about things like dark matter and dark energy we know these things are there we see their effects but we don't know what's causing them it's a little bit like gravity you can't see gravity it, it, it has an effect around it and we don't really know what causes gravity at its most fundamental level and that's but we on can earth study it and observe it and figure it out and that's gravity on our own planet or even uh, i mean the earth is orbiting the sun and the sun is orbiting the center of our galaxy and we see other star systems that are orbiting each other. So we, we see the effects of gravity all over the universe, and we can predict very well how it behaves. But at a fundamental level, we just don't understand why it does what it does, which is a different question. How much of a role has your interest in science fiction played in your understanding of these matters? Well, a huge amount. You know, science isn't just... Uh, looking at stuff and writing things down and, and applying math, there's there's a human element, a huge human element to it. There's inspiration, uh, and there is uh, just the ability to get up every morning and do it. <laughs> you know, and that that can that can be a slog sometimes. And I grew up watching uh, uh, Star Trek and, and space. I'm, I'm wearing a Space 1999 shirt right now as we're talking, and those shows. I'm just spacey. Um, that's all. Yeah, and uh, that was a show back in the 1970s. And I, it, it, those shows kept me motivated uh, to learn more about this stuff. It, 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 and it goes back and forth. I love science fiction and I love science, and they both inspire my love of, of the other. And later we'll even talk about how science fiction sometimes gets things right and sometimes gets things wrong. Um, but uh, let's talk about the uh, our the closest to us, uh, moon. Wouldn't visitors to the moon surface have to adjust to a lunar day that lasts about as long as a month on Earth and during which the sky will be utterly black? I think if you were to live on the moon, even besides the fact that it's airless and has lower gravity than the Earth, I think you'd get used to the lower gravity pretty quickly. Um, because the astronauts did in the Apollo missions. I think the long, long, long days and nights would be the weirdest thing and the hardest to get used to. You know, it, well, when... We, we spent, humans have been on the moon. What did they report back? Did they have well, a hard time adjusting? They weren't there long enough to, um, to really adjust to everything. They learned how to, to walk around in the low gravity, for example. But even the longest missions were only there for about three days. And it is weird, right? It's the sun was always up in the sky. It takes the moon about a month to spin once. So the sun is up for two weeks and then it goes down for two weeks. So even when they were there and they, they landed on the daylit part of the moon, it was just daytime the whole time they were there. And we have a hard time when it comes to daylight saving, you know, jumping, jumping ahead or back an hour. Imagine the sun is always, you know, very roughly in the same part of the sky over the course of an entire day. That would be really weird. And we, I, I imagine it would be really hard to get to sleep. You describe Earth rises and solar eclipses from the other side. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, the moon spins once for every time it goes around the Earth. So from the Earth, we always see the same face of the moon, the near side. But from the moon, it's sort of the opposite. You, if you're on the side facing Earth, Earth is always up in your sky. If you're on the side away from the Earth, it's never up in the sky. The Earth does move around a little bit, and I do talk about that in the book. Um, and from certain places on the moon, you could watch the Earth rise and set over the horizon. It would never get very far from the horizon. That would be that would be weird. But the sky itself, at least on the when it's night on the moon, wouldn't really be any different than here on Earth. You're seeing the same stars in the same positions. And so if you went out on Earth at a dark site at night or on the moon and looked up, you'd see the same stars in the same places. Hmm. What are lunar regoliths? Ah, the regolith is this is the is this crunchy powdery material that covers the surface of the moon. It's a, it's basically rocks on the moon that have been ground down over millions and billions of years from things like the solar wind and meteorite impacts and it's it's nasty stuff. It's like volcanic ash. It's it looks like powder, but under a microscope it looks like shattered glass. 
And this is going to be a real problem for astronauts uh, who want to go to the moon and live on the moon because it gets in everything. It can destroy machinery. It can build up a big static charge and cling to your suit. And if you breathe it, it can actually cause a lot of health issues. It's similar to uh, black lung pneumoconiosis that miners get. It's nasty stuff, and we're going to have to figure out how to deal with it uh, when we go to live on the moon for real. And it attaches itself to spacesuits. So did it? Did uh, astronauts bring it back to Earth? Yeah, um, it's it's basically dust, and it, it gets a, a, a static charge. You know, if you ever rub a balloon against your head and stick it to a wall, it's the same sort of thing. The sunlight can give this stuff a static charge, and it would cling to things like their spacesuits. And when you look at pictures of the Apollo astronauts on the moon, you can see like their knees are covered in this gray powder. And, and from kneeling down to work on their instrumentation and stuff. And yeah, they complained about it a lot. They said it, it, it caused them to cough and sneeze. And they brought a little bit of it back to Earth. It's, it's not like dangerous. It's not like a biological thing. Um, but uh, there are samples of it that, that scientists still study to try to understand how it behaves. You write that the landscape of Mars might stir associations with uh, the barren red scenery of the American West. Although yeah, that, the, that, the there's no mistaking that similarity. Um, yeah, when when um, I believe it was Curiosity landed on Mars, the rover, and it took pictures around it, and there was a, a a mountain in the background, and this mountain was sort of red, and it was layered with brown and and tan layers. It looked just like sedimentary deposits in Arizona, New Mexico, where you can go and see them. I live in Colorado; I can see things like that here, and it, you know it's similar. It's just that Mars has a lot of iron oxide rust in its rocks and and this dust covers everything uh, that it's basically rusty dust and over millions of years and billions of years ago uh, this this stuff was deposited in layers when mars used to have water and then the water evaporated leaving behind these uh these layers which then eroded as the wind eroded them and it's amazing how much it looks like the american southwest except you know hardly any air lower gravity and it's on a planet millions of miles away you explain how the behavior of light waves interacting with that rusty dust in the atmosphere of Mars gives its skies a butterscotch color, but not at sunset. Yeah, this was something, um, I guess we could have predicted this, but I, I didn't see any predictions before we went to Mars, and it never would have occurred to me, but this dust is very, very, very fine dust. It's almost microscopic, and it's suspended in the air, and it colors the sky reddish or, or butterscotch, ochre, uh, different shades of that. However, sunlight passing through it tends to scatter, kind of like a pinball uh, off of bumpers in a pinball game. And that blue light gets scattered toward you. So around the sun, the sky will look kind of blue. And that, that, uh, that phenomenon is magnified. It's, it's stronger near sunrise and sunset. So overall, the sky on Mars is red. But if you were to look at the sun when it's rising or setting, the sky around it's going to look blue. And that's the opposite of Earth, where we have a blue sky and red sunset. And again, you know, it's, it's, it's a reminder that Mars has features that kind of remind us of Earth, but in the end, it's an alien world. And if you go there, it's, it's going to be a very different experience. Why do you think the, the different planets, which all grew out of the same Big Bang, are so different? Well, you know, a family is different. Your, your brothers and sisters aren't exactly the same as you, even though you're made from roughly the same material. Yeah, but my brother it, isn't a but, doesn't have a butterscotch color. <laughs> well, and you know, Mars is butterscotch because it has a lot of iron on it, and so does Earth. It's just that the, the, the climate and the weathering and, and the, the, the phenomena on Earth that, that govern our, uh, the, the, the surface are different than Mars. And some of the planets formed really far out and got really big and pulled in a lot of gas, like Jupiter and Saturn. Mars and Earth are smaller, so they didn't. On Mars, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot smaller than Earth, and so as it, uh, as it aged, it evolved differently. Uh, we think it's magnetic. It used to have a magnetic field like Earth, but that shut down for various reasons. That didn't protect it from the solar wind, and its atmosphere eroded away, and all its water evaporated and boiled off. And so now it's sort of cold and dry, whereas Earth is warm and wet. So is the there size a theory matters. why it shut down? 
Um, it, it, the simple idea is that Mars is just smaller, and so its core cooled faster than Earth's did, and you have to have sort of a hot core, hot iron core to generate a magnetic field. So maybe that's why. There could be other reasons. Maybe its core just isn't as big as Earth's was, for, or smaller in comparison. We don't really know the answers to these, which is why we're exploring these planets and trying to figure it out. My guest on today is Leonard Lopate at large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Philip Plate, P-L-A-I-T, whose latest book is Under Alien Skies, A Sightseer's Guide to the Universe. It's published by W.W. Norton. Um, why do some stars appear to be blue while others appear to be red? When you go outside at night and look up at the sky, most stars look white. Mm -hmm. And they're not really white. It's just that the way your eyes work, the, the stars aren't bright enough to activate the cells in your eyes that see color. So they just look white. But some of the brighter stars look red. And if you were to go out, say, tonight, you could look at stars like Betelgeuse, Arcturus, and Aldebaran. These are very red stars, whereas a star like uh, 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 Vega, uh, it's a spring and summer star, is very blue. And this has to do with basically how hot they are. Hotter stars look bluer and cooler stars look red. And, and just that simple bit of knowledge uh, revolutionized astronomy over a century ago when we, when we started to understand how stars work and why, why they are as hot as they are and as bright as they are. Where do they get those names? Who gave it the name Betelgeuse? Most of the, that's a good question. Most of the names of the bright stars in the sky are Arabic. Um, hmm. It was the, uh, in, in the, a thousand years ago or more, uh, it was in the Middle East where a lot of these things were named. And so you have a lot of names that start with A-L, which means the in Arabic. So Aldebaran and, um, oh gosh, uh, Betelgeuse literally means the shoulder or the armpit of the giant because it's yeah. it's sort of Orion's uh, right arm. And so you, you have a lot of funny names like that. I always thought it was a rock like and that. roll group. Sorry? I always thought it was a rock and roll group. Is it Betelgeuse? I don't know. <laughs> It's a movie. <laughs> okay, it's a movie. It, yeah, a I movie think technically I, it should be pronounced Bet El Guz, but there you go. You know, we we change things over definitely time. Definitely says it's a movie. It, so those, those things were named by Arabs because they were looking up at the sky all the time. It was easier for them to see the sky, uh, especially if they were living in desert areas. You know, I don't know um, enough about the history to, to be able to answer that question specifically. Um, but I do know that um, there were Arab astronomers and uh, Arab maps dating way back. And a lot of those names just got picked up. And not all of them. I mean, we have names of stars like Alpha Centauri mm -hmm. because it's the brightest star in the constellation Centaurus. And so that's, that's just what we call it. It has a, a formal name too, but nobody ever calls it that. I mean, the sun has a formal name, a Latin name, Sol, S-O-L. Mm -hmm. Nobody calls it that. We just call it the sun. What's the composition of an asteroid, and what might it feel like to land on an asteroid? Well, there are different kinds of asteroids. Most of them are, are what we call stony. They're, they're basically made of rocks. It's the same sort of material uh, that a lot of the crust of the Earth is made of. It's silicon, silicates. Some of them are metallic. NASA has a mission to go to a metallic asteroid called Psyche. Um, that's going to be pretty cool when we see that up close. So that would be pretty and, big, right? That one, oh, you know, I don't know how big it is. I know I mean, it's if, one of the biggest asteroids in the asteroid belt. It. So, If you could land on it, if you could send oh. a mission to it, it would seem to me that it had to be big enough to, to put people on. Uh, this one, it, it's a robotic explorer that's going to orbit it and map it and do a mineralogical survey to see what it's made of. And, um, uh, I, you know, I, I could look it up right now. I've got a browser open in front of me, but I won't, you know, put your audience through that. It, it's something like 100 miles across. I don't know exactly how big. But the thing is, smaller ones are different. And a lot of the ones that we've seen up close that are under a mile across are rubble piles. They're basically small rocks that are held together by their own gravity. They're not really solid. Hmm. You could stand on one and pick up a rock and throw it into space and do that over and over again. And eventually there'd be no more asteroid. There's just no, <laughs> there's no solid surface there. And landing on those is hard because the gravity is very weak. So you can't just like walk around on it. You'd, you'd launch yourself into space. 
And the other problem is that the rocks are extremely fragile. They're crumbly. And uh, if you, you could pick one up and just crush it in your hand. And we've had space probes uh, go to these asteroids and take samples of them and approach these asteroids slowly to sort of scoop up samples and actually bury themselves in the asteroid. This, this happened to one a couple of years ago that was trying to get samples and it buried itself something like 18 to 20 inches into the asteroid and had to pull itself out. Hmm. So if you were to try to land on one and, and walk around on it, you'd, you'd actually have a really, really hard time. It would be like walking around on trying to walk on the surface of a box full of styrofoam peanuts or in a, you know, a ball pit at a, at a, at a, kids uh, kids restaurant or something like that so it sounds to me like it's not only difficult to get to these places but it's difficult to then stand on them or land on them yeah um, this this stuff is hard i mean it's is it it's really in most cases? difficult to to over over you know exaggerate that it's the it's really really hard to do this stuff and even when we get there there was a mission to a comet that tried to land on a comet and it didn't work hmm. it was going to um basically harpoon the comet and the harpoons uh, just didn't didn't work they didn't uh, attach themselves right or they didn't launch and so you can spend a lot of money and do all the research and everything but once you get there you know a lot of battle plans don't survive the battlefield that's an old expression and it's true for space exploration as well how would saturn's rings look from a spaceship that was sailing just above them Oh, this was my one of my favorite things to write about and, and one of the reasons I wanted to write this book. Um, Saturn has these magnificent rings. They are enormous. From end to end, they would stretch two-thirds of the way from the Earth to the Moon. And they are incredibly thin. And I think that's the thing I don't think people understand the most. They're made of chunks of, of ice, almost pure water ice. But the rings themselves, even though they're you know 100,000 or more miles wide, they're only a few yards high. They're, they're very, very thin. And it, they're, they're, to scale, they're actually thinner than a piece of paper. If you took a piece of paper and expanded it to the size of Saturn's rings, the paper would be thicker than the rings. And so sailing over them would be really weird. You can see right through them. And you could see that they're not solid. They're made of trillions of pieces of this ice. Hmm. And there are thousands and thousands of mini ringlets. They're, it's not just like a big wide band uh, orbiting Saturn. They're, they're ringlets, tiny thin ribbons that orbit it. And the moons carve all these incredible delicate structures into them, ripples and, um, and mountains and uh, uh, strange features called propellers that kind of look like a propeller from, a, uh, from an airplane because of the way gravity works. And we, we don't really know what else is there. The, the spacecraft called Cassini took a lot of close-up images of the rings, but it never really got super close and uh, you know to, to actually sail over them and see all these features up close would be a magnificent and two very surprising because there would be a lot of stuff that we wouldn't expect when you see it up close. I'm just stunned by the diversity of the, the different planets in our solar system. I would have thought, as I mentioned earlier, that they had things in common. But we're talking about Saturn, which is uh, a gas giant, uh, and its only solid ground uh, is on its core. It's hotter than the surface of the sun and has thousands of miles of, of atmosphere. That's, you know, that does sound like the stuff of science fiction. Yeah, um, nature is smarter than we are and more clever, and it, it tends to come up with really strange things that even in science fiction we haven't come up with yet. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the core of Saturn is buried under thousands of miles of hydrogen and helium. The upper layer is gas, but as you get deeper into it, this stuff gets denser and denser and becomes a liquid. And by the time you get to the, the core of Saturn, which is uh, probably bigger than the Earth, it's going to be very, very hot, like the Earth's core is hot, and it's probably hotter than the sun. And you know, why do these planets have these giant thick atmospheres when Earth doesn't? And we have an idea, planets form in different ways. Jupiter and Saturn had more material to work with, so they were able to get bigger. And as they got bigger, they got more gravity, which let them draw in more material. Um, but why is Saturn, both, for example- Both of them became gas giants. Right, as, as did Uranus and Neptune. But Saturn has this magnificent ring system. Well, Jupiter, Uranus, Neptune also have rings, but they're very, very thin and faint. 
So, you know, why are Saturn so huge and broad and bright? Was it a moon that orbited Saturn and, and broke apart? You know, a collision with another object? Was it a gigantic comet? How old are the rings? This is a, a question that astronomers are arguing about right now. They may only be 100 million years old, which is not terribly old. They may be as old as Saturn. And we just don't know. There's evidence on both sides and, and people are leaning more towards them being young now. But that 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 last chapter on that has not been written. Do we have a sense of what the sky would look like if we were on the surface? Well, if you were well, if you're on the surface, you'd be dead. I mean, Saturn no, doesn't you, really have a surface. No, well, but, you know what uh, I mean? Well, protecting. Yeah, uh, I always like saying say that, that there, though, is a, uh, there is a little solid ground at the core. But yeah, deep, yeah that's hot. so deep. Yeah, that's so far deep down. If you look down, you'd be it'd be like standing on the sun. It would be incredibly luminous. Um, but if you were in Saturn's atmosphere, sort of at the the edge of the atmosphere, if you want to think of it that way, floating in a balloon, you could look out and see the sky would be sort of um, yellowish or tan because there's there's haze in the in the atmosphere. And, you know, when we have hazy days on Earth, it, the sky looks fairly white um, on Saturn. The haze is made of a different substance that would that would tint it yellow. But at night, you would be able to see the rings stretching over you. They would stretch from horizon to horizon, be huge. If they were lit by the sun, they would light up all the air around you. And you could watch the moons moving around the planet as well. Some of them orbit Saturn in a matter of, uh, of, of hours. And so you could watch them move around very rapidly. And in the meantime, Saturn's entire day, it spins once every very roughly 10 hours. And so just over the course of a couple of hours, you would see the stars rising and setting very rapidly, much more rapidly than on Earth. It would so, be literally unearthly. So it, even though it's huge, it, a day is only 10 hours? Yeah, that's that's kind of weird. It's Saturn you know, is, Earth is um, a lot smaller and a day is 24 hours. And it's it's because the the two planets have changed over time. Saturn when when Saturn formed, material fell onto it and basically made it spin really really fast. It's a little bit like an ice skater as they start spinning and they draw their arms in and they spin up. They start spinning much more rapidly. This is called conservation of angular momentum if you want to impress people at cocktail parties. <laughs> and the big planets I'm are sorry, still spinning Captain. very rapidly even after billions of years. With the Earth, we have this large moon that formed sometime after the Earth did. And because of the interchange of gravity between the Earth and the moon, it's actually slowed the Earth's spin. The reason the moon always shows one face to us, that it spins once for every time it orbits, is also because of this, this gravitational dance. It slowed down the Earth, slowed down the moon's spin, locked the moon's spin to its orbit, and the moon has actually receded from Earth over billions of years. It used to be much closer. Now it's farther away, all because of gravity. Is Pluto only one-sixth the mass of Earth's moon? Is that why it was discovered only in 1930, because it's so small? Oh, gosh, you know what? I don't know the exact mass of Pluto off the top of my head. Um, but yes, it is much... Um, it is much smaller and lower mass than the Earth, and it's very, very far away. But it has lots uh, of moons. Um, it's smaller than Earth's moon, in fact. Hmm. And the only reason it was spotted back in 1930, it was just discovered in 1930, and it was actually seen, it was actually photographed even before that, but nobody recognized it for what it was. But it was discovered in 1930 because it's shiny. It's, it's made of um, uh, water ice and frozen nitrogen and frozen methane. These are all very reflective ices. And so even though it's really far away, it reflects sunlight and is much brighter than the moon would be. The moon is just dull gray rock. And if you were to put the moon where Pluto is, it would be much fainter than Pluto and much harder to find. So that's why, that's why it was discovered at all in 1930. It, it would have been much later if it had been darker. But it is just so faint and so far away that it, it, it took that long to discover it. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope 
you're enjoying my conversation with Philip Plate, and if you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Under Alien Skies, A Sightseer's Guide to the Universe. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org, or call us at 212 212- Two zero nine two nine five zero. That's two one two two zero nine twenty nine fifty. Do that during today's show. We'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that fifty dollar donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And we thank you very much. And return now to Philip Carey Plate. Uh, his latest book, Under Alien Skies: A Sightseer's Guide to the Universe, published by William Morrow. He is uh, not just an astronomer, but also a popular science blogger. He's worked as um, as part of the Hubble Space Telescope team, uh, and he has also appeared in several science documentaries. Um, so uh, we're talking about his new book, Under Alien Skies. Um, <laughs> You 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 also take us beyond our solar system to exoplanets. What are they? These are planets that orbit other stars, literally alien worlds that orbit alien stars. And uh, these were speculated for centuries. We, we thought maybe other stars had planets around them. The sun does. Why wouldn't other stars? But they we've weren't also, actually... We've dis- also speculated that there may be other places that are like Earth, but we have no sense of that. Well, we didn't until the 1990s when the first of these exoplanets was discovered. Ah. Uh, And then in the mid-1990s, 1995, the first one was found orbiting a star kind of like the sun. And it wasn't a planet like Earth at all. It was more like Jupiter, and it was orbiting really close to the star. So it was really hot, and astronomers in sort of our typical inventive fashion call them hot Jupiters. But over time now, uh, since that date, it's only it's been less than 30 years now since that planet was discovered, we found over 5,000 exoplanets. Wow. And a lot of them are like Jupiter and Saturn, even Neptune. But we're getting better at finding smaller ones. And we're finding planets similar in size to Earth. And they're orbiting their stars at the right distance to maybe, maybe have liquid water on their surface. And that's exciting because we know that life on Earth, at least, needs liquid water to uh, to evolve and survive. And we don't know if these planets are Earth-like. We know they're about Earth's size, but we don't know how Earth-like they are. But again, you know, we're, we're getting to the point where very soon we should be able to um, uh, observe uh, their atmospheres, to actually see what's made up in their atmospheres. Maybe it's all hydrogen and helium, and it's not like Earth at all, but maybe it's nitrogen and oxygen, and that would be very, very exciting. How long would it take for a spaceship to reach one of these exoplanets? Well, the Enterprise does it in less than one episode, right? But uh, <laughs> in real life, I, I'm a big Star, Star, Star Trek fan, and thank you yeah, for playing we'll the, Star Wars thing, cause the Star Wars theme, because I have a feeling we'll be talking about that in a minute as yeah. well. Um, but yeah, the, the most powerful rockets that we have today would take thousands, tens of thousands of years to get to the nearest star. We have some ideas including some that that would with technology today we could kind of sort of build that could get there much faster um but it would be ridiculously expensive and uh it would still take like you know 50 years to develop this technology so it's not something we're going to do anytime soon so right now we're stuck with observing them with telescopes Uh, don't most of these uh, exoplanets have two or more suns some of them do um it's, it's unclear what the statistics are uh, because it's a little bit tougher to observe planets around stars that are like binary stars. Um, the sun is a single star. It's solo in space. It's just hanging out by itself. But a lot of stars are in what we call binary systems. They're two stars that orbit each other. And they're, they're also trinary and quaternary stars, three and four, and, and higher order stars as well. So are we in and, a statistical oddball here on Earth? Well, that's a really good question, and I, uh, I, I think that it depends on what kind of statistics you're looking at. It turns out that the most common kind of star is a dinky little red dwarf. These are smaller than the sun, they're cooler and fainter, and they tend to be solo stars. They don't, they don't tend to become in binaries. They 
there are some, but typically these stars are born alone. And um, they also typically appear to have planets. We've observed a lot of these stars and a lot of them seem to have planets. And so it may very well be that the most common kind of planet in the galaxy orbits a red dwarf star. And you imagine a spaceship landing on the surface of the Star Wars planet Tatooine. Yes. Um, it's, it, it's, it's funny that a lot of movies get stuff wrong. And Star Wars, you know, Star Wars is kind of science fiction. It's more fantasy. Um, but hey, Tatooine is Tatooine. a desert planet, kind of like the Earth, but hotter, that orbits a pair of stars that orbit each other. And the movie got that right. There are planets like that. We call them Tatooine-like planets. And Luke Skywalker uh, you, stood at dusk beneath a sky with two suns. So how yeah, I mean that's that an right? iconic scene, right? Hmm. And and yeah, so he's you know he's pondering his fate, and and he stands there with his leg up on the rock and the wind whiff, whiffling his hair, and he watches two suns setting, and that scene is pretty good. The 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 the, the stars of Tatooine are, are sun-like stars that orbit each other, and in my book I talk about the physics of that, how close they would be, how far the planet would have to be to be habitable, and what you would see, and you would see these two stars moving around each other fairly rapidly, even across uh, the course of a day. You would see them maybe rise far apart, but maybe by noon they'd be much closer together because they're whipping around each other so rapidly. It would be pretty intense and very, very cool to see something like that. It would be weird because you'd have two sunrises, suns rises, and sunsets. Also, yeah, it was it was hard to write that in the book. Suns set and suns rise. Um, it, it, it's. It, it would be very strange. You, they could, they might rise together, um, or you might have one rise and then a few minutes later the second one rise. Mm -hmm. And it's even more bizarre if you're in a binary system where the two stars are very far apart and your planet is orbiting one of those two stars. You would have day and night, kind of like you would on Earth, the, the primary star, if you want to call it that, would rise and set. But that second star, the secondary star, much farther away, might be very bright, even brighter than the full moon. And some parts of the year it would be up at night and some parts during the day. So there are going to be times during the year when at, at, at your primary star sunset, the secondary star rises and you never have night for weeks at a time. And that would just, that would be very, very strange. Did the, uh, <laughs> did the fiction side of you uh, lead you to envision how life on such a planet might adjust to the wild swings in temperature and climate that would result from circumbinary orbit? Yeah, so a planet orbiting two stars, a binary star, is called a circumbinary planet. And um, it's, how do I say this? One of the things that I love is fiction inspired by reality. So if you have science fiction that is inspired by real science, um, it, it, it goes back and forth. So you say, well, you know, the temperature is going to drop when one of those stars blocks the other one. The, you, you're sort of having a, a star eclipse. The temperature is going to drop and it could drop as much as 70 degrees in a few minutes, although realistically it would be less than that. Uh, and um, the light That's goes like down. That's yesterday so, and today here in New York. Well, yeah, if you've ever very cold ever been today the, and it was hot yesterday. And, and that is, that's due to uh, the Earth's atmosphere moving, moving uh, air around, right? And the same thing, it could be true on, on a planet like that. And if you have, if you, if you live in a humid environment, like say New York, I grew up in Virginia, uh, you know, it doesn't get that much cooler at night, but I live in Colorado now where it's extremely dry. And when you can have a hot day and when the sun sets, it's like a light switch. The temperature drops sometimes 20 degrees or more. And that could happen on this planet as well. And so plants would have to adapt for that. And I, I talk about this in the book. Maybe their leaves curl up mm -hmm. to protect themselves from, from the cold. And how, how would life adapt to something like that? I don't know. But it, it's fun to sort of let your imagination run wild, inspired by the science that you know is actually happening there. Because we look, you know, I can look out my window and I see my trees are just starting to bud. And that's because... We have seasons on Earth. We don't have to have seasons. The, the Earth could orbit the sun could, could and be tilted in such a way that we could have more extreme seasons or no seasons at all, and life evolved to adapt to that. So if you have different conditions on a different planet and life evolved there, what would it be like? And it's fun to speculate about that based on the science we know. Can you talk about globular clusters? 
And yes, they, they orbit I the, can. The Milky um, Way. What, what are they? These are um, my favorite objects to look at in the sky. These are collections of up to a million stars, a million stars packed into basically a spherical mass. And that's why they're called globular clusters. They're, they're like globes. Um, they kind of look like beehives uh, with like a million bees flying around. Although the stars, you can't really see them moving. And they're, they're absolutely gorgeous through the eyepiece. If you look these things up, uh, you'll find Hubble Space Telescope images of them and ground-based telescope pictures of them. They're absolutely gorgeous. The thing is, if, if, you're, or, if you're on a planet orbiting a star in a globular cluster, um, all of these stars are packed into a space that is very small. They're, they're, they're less than 100 light years across. There aren't that many stars near the sun within 100 light years, a few thousand. But in a globular cluster, there's 100 or 1,000 times that many. So your night sky, you go out in the desert here on Earth and look at the night sky, and you see thousands of stars, and it's kind of overwhelming. But in a globular cluster, you'd see a hundred times as many, and uh, the sky would just be just elbow to elbow with stars, and some of them would be so bright that you could read by them, and you they would cast shadows. Uh, and then the, the cluster itself, especially if you were on a star near the edge of it, you know, if you live near the edge of a city, you can look toward downtown, and that's where all the action is, right? That's where all the lights are. In a globular cluster, it's the same thing. If you're living in the suburbs, a star in the outskirts, you could face one part of the sky and see that cluster hanging over you. And I think that, oh, that's almost tied with Saturn for something I would really, really, really want to see up close because it would be, it would just be awe-inspiring. And globular clusters are stolen from uh, galaxies that, that the Milky Way has eaten? Yeah, this is something that we didn't know. When I was a, a kid, globular clusters way, were have interesting a of a to globular cluster in your book. So, it's interesting. Well, yeah, I, uh, um, you have lots of We pictures. didn't know that much about them when I was a kid, and it was thought that they were that we knew they were old, about as old as the galaxy, billions of years old. But we thought they were all kind of the same age and they all had sort of the same stuff going on. It turns out no, they're they're all very different. And some of them may not be clusters of stars that were born by themselves. They may have once been galaxies like the Milky Way, although smaller. And they got too close to our bigger galaxy and our gravity ripped away all of their outer stars. Now all that's left is the core of that galaxy. And a, a globular cluster that's born like a cluster and one that's born like a galaxy look very similar. It's not until you study the stars in detail that you start to see differences because the stars would have formed in a different way. And that's, you know, it's not brand new science, but it's 10 years old, maybe 20, that we started figuring this stuff out. And now we understand that these are actually really interesting objects besides being spectacularly beautiful. You say in one of your chapters that Hollywood hasn't been as good in interpreting black holes as it has in interpreting exoplanets. <laughs> um, that, oh, it's a whole subject for me. Um, black we have people little, have this. We I, have about uh, five minutes or so. We could talk about it and, and spaghettification and things like that. <laughs> well, let me start with Einstein's equations. Uh, okay. No. Um, black holes, people have a lot of misconceptions about them. And black holes, are, are basically, they're a lot like stars. They're just massive objects. But the, the big difference here is that they're tiny. If you take a star and crush it down into something that's very, very small, just a few miles across, it becomes a black hole. And from a long way away, the gravity that you feel from it would be the same. It would be as if it were a star, not a black hole. It's only until you get close to them that the gravity gets so intense that the effects start to get really bizarre. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, a black hole that's only a few miles across, if you start to fall into it, at some point, your feet are closer to the black hole than your head. And it's only like, what, five feet, six feet, depending on how tall you are. Um, but still, the gravity is so intense that it pulls on your feet much, much harder than your head, and it can rip you apart. It sort of pulls and pulls and pulls you. It stretches you like taffy until you're this long, thin noodle. And uh, astronomers, this is what we call it. We call it spaghettification, when you're basically turned into pasta. So if you were falling into a black hole, what's the last thing you'd see before your sp spaghettification? Um, 
That is a question that seems simple to answer, but it depends. Um, if you're if you're falling into a, 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 a small black hole, one that was formed by a star, um, you'd actually be dead long before you were spaghettified. Um, but things would be weird. If you fell into a big one, um, you wouldn't get spaghettified because it's so large that the difference in, in distance between your feet and your head is small. And you could you'd bloop, fall right into this thing whole. But it, things get weird. What Einstein figured out is that gravity affects the flow of time. And if you're near a black hole, your time will flow more slowly compared to somebody far away. And this isn't like a mechanical thing. This is literally time will move more slowly for you. And so somebody seeing you fall into the black hole will see you moving sort of more and more slowly and you will see them moving more and more rapidly. Um, but also as you fall in, um, the stars will appear different. Their, their light will start to get bluer because they're gaining energy as they fall into the, the black hole. But the really weird thing is that somebody on the outside would see you eventually just kind of stop. Your time would be frozen. They but warp you, space and time? What's that? They warp space and time? Black yeah, they, that, that's basically what they're doing. They're, they're, they're stretching and, and, and bending space and time. And so somebody outside sees your time slowing down, but you don't, you experience time quite normally. For you, it's them, they're speeding up. So you would fall right into the black hole and you wouldn't even really notice what was going on. Uh, and then, well, 20 minutes later, you'd, you'd fall to the center and you'd be crushed by the forces there. And, and it's unclear what you would see inside the black hole. There are equations that govern that, um, but the way they twist space and time is so weird that uh, what you see is not really terribly well understood. Are we close enough to a black hole to even be able to to fly to one? No, thank goodness. Um, that's the good news. So grateful. Um, you know, it'd be nice if some were a little bit closer so we could study them better, um, but not too close. You know, it's like it's like studying uh, cobras. You know, you want to see them from a, a certain distance, not like super up close and personal. Uh, and the nearest ones we know of are, are many, many hundreds of light years away. And um, we've actually taken pictures of some of them uh, with the Event Horizon Telescope, this magnificent telescope that, that combines radio telescopes from all over the world. And we've looked at one in the center of our galaxy and one in the center of a more distant galaxy. And it, it basically kind of confirms the, the math and the physics of what we understand about them and also shows us that there's still a lot more we need to figure out about them. So. They're, they're close enough that we can study them, but far enough away that, you know, they're not a, uh, an imminent threat to us. We don't have a lot more time, but I just wanted to address nebulas. Nebulae? Uh, Nebulae, I believe, nebulae. is the plural, yeah. They are the, the nurseries for new stars? That's right. Um, these are gigantic gas clouds, clouds of gas, and some of them have a lot of grains of, of like dusty material in them as well. And th these are where stars are born. These, these uh, gas clouds can be immense, many, some of them hundreds of light years across. And so new, new stars are being created all the time? Yes, and and um, this this was suspected for a long time, but now we we understand we can see this happening. We're, we're we can point telescopes at these gas clouds and see stars forming, and see planets forming as well out of this material. They collect and and fall down into these clumps that gather more and more material, and that's what forms stars and planets. Just uh, we have a little more time left. I was curious about something. I'm a little uncomfortable about asking you about it. Why have okay. you been called the bad astronomer? <laughs> well, I don't think of myself as bad, but when I started doing this back in the 1990s, started writing on the on the internet and talking about stuff, it was mostly about myths and misconceptions, like what I was just talking about with black holes. And, uh, and you wrote a book called I Bad started, Astronomy. My, my first book was called Bad Astronomy, but even before that, I had a website called Bad Astronomy. It's still there. It's ancient, and I need to update it. It's like, I think I froze it in like 2000, so it's kind of awful to look at right now. But I called the, the, these myths and misconceptions, they're bad astronomy. And people started calling me the bad astronomer. And I thought that was that was funny. And I just I kept the nickname and I still have it today. Is there anything you want to add before we end this? Yeah, um, let me just say that it was a lot of fun writing this book. I, I it's not just describing this stuff, I want you to experience 
these places? What is it like to walk on the moon? What is it like to fall into a black hole or be on a spaceship touring a nebula? And that's why I wrote the book. And um, I might as well, I can plug my newsletter. I have a newsletter, which I write three times a week at badastronomy.substack.com. Okay. And you have two books, Bad Astronomy and Death from the Skies, and now this new one called Under Alien Skies, A Sightseer's Guide to the Universe, published by Norton, W.W. Norton. Um, And um, it's gotten... Great review so far. Um, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's always a relief seeing that people like what you spent two years working on. So that's that's been pretty nice. I'm quite pleased. And it's been fun talking with you. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you. I appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the station going. We are going through a rough time right now. Um, Most public broadcasting is having a rough time, but... BAI, which doesn't rely on, um, uh, which just relies on listener donations, doesn't take ads or foundation grants. Um, that puts us in a particularly uh, deep hole sometimes. And right now we are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by helping us out and calling. 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book that we've been discussing, Under Alien Skies, The Sightseer's Guide to the Universe by Philip Plait, P-L-A-I-T. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online, give to WBAI.org. And um, you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of this station, what we call a BAI buddy. Ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five dollars, however much you feel comfortable with per month, as long as you want to do that. And we will say, and it allows us to plan for the future, which is great. And we'll say thank you if you do that with a WBAI tote bag for anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for ten dollars a month or more. But either way. I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. As I said, we don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that is 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us again tomorrow when my guest will be our gardening expert, Pete Moroski, and we'll be taking your calls. So we'll see you then. 